so, if you miss everything else today, don't miss this. Do I have your attention? If you miss everything else, so if you're like kind of locked in for just a couple minutes and then you're going to drift off and think about the U.S. Open or whatever it is you think about on Father's Day, um, don't miss this. This is so important that God invites each one of us in the world. God invites you and he invites me to call him Father. And when we do this, when we begin to acknowledge God as our Father, we begin to experience, because he is our father, because he's a different kind of father, we begin to experience compassion and grace and love and faithfulness like we've never experienced before. If we're able to turn to God and call him father as he wants us to do, we enter into a whole new realm of compassion and love and grace and faithfulness. A God who will never give up on this. I said this a couple weeks ago, that even when you're unfaithful, listen, this is good news, even when you're unfaithful, God is faithful. Come on now. Isn't that good news? I mean, nowhere else in, in this world do we get to experience that, where when we're unfaithful, somebody remains faithful to us. That is the God, that is the Father that invites every single one of us into relationship with him. God is so much better than you imagine. He's so much better than you've experienced. He's so much bigger. His scope is so much wider than we could ever imagine. And so today, you know, I, I want to I give you just a little glimpse of, of this God, this Father that you have in heaven, and I'm, I'm inviting you as you, as you consider God, to, to agree with him and say, yeah, you are, you're my father, unlike anything I've ever experienced in life. So over these few weeks, we've been walking through this passage of scripture that is quoted throughout the Bible, and it's found in Exodus chapter 34. And last week, Cameron, don't you love Cameron? Aren't you so grateful for Cameron? He's so awesome. Um, I'm so thankful for the way he does so much in, in our church, but the way that he communicated the compassion of God last week, the compassion, the way that God views us and sees us is compassionate. It moves God, like internally. It does something to him. He loves us, and it moves him to action. So uh, this passage from, uh, from Exodus chapter 34 says this. This is, this is God speaking to Moses, Yahweh, Yahweh, the God of compassion and grace. So God is defining himself. He's giving a picture to, to, to all humanity of who he is, what he's like, his character. I love this. I am slow to anger. I am slow to anger. He's, he's this father who is slow to anger, which for some of us is like, I don't know if that could exist. <laughs> if you're a dad... And, you know, you've been like, I've tried to be slow to anger, but it's difficult from time to time. Can I get an amen? Am I the only one? Anyone else in the room? It's hard to be slow to anger. And this is our Father in heaven who is compassionate. He sees us and he's gracious. He's even slow to anger. That's how good he is. He's slow to anger and he's filled. He's overflowing with unfailing love and faithfulness. And he says this, I lavish unfailing love or loyal love is, is a good translation of this word. I, I lavish this. I pour this out 
on a thousand generations. Now, that thousand generations, so often as humans, we like to count. Are we still, are we still a part of that? Are we beyond that? And the word there just means everyone. God pours out his loyal, unfailing love to everyone. He forgives iniquity and rebellion and sin. And then we get to the challenging. There's some tension here because we get to this, this point where he says, but I do not excuse the guilty. And I think the turn here is this idea that, that God pours out his unfailing love to a thousand generations again and again, and he forgives and he forgives and he forgives and he forgives and he forgives. But if we continue on the same path that we're on, he eventually will not excuse when we are hard-headed and continue in ways that hurt other people, that bring evil into this world. Are you with me? Does that make sense? And there's some tension there. I know we don't like this last part. And then he goes on to say, I lay the sins of parents upon children and grandchildren, the entire family affected to the third and fourth generation. And, oh, I've been wrestling with this phrase for like the last month and a half. Like, like what does that mean? What does that mean? That, does that mean if, if I make mistakes that God actually punishes my children and grandchildren for that? You know, do you, do you read that? Do you see that? It's... There's some tension there, isn't there? It makes us uncomfortable. Like, well, if he forgives, if he loves us with an unfailing love, then what, what is that saying? And I think it's saying what it's saying, that the entire family is affected by the decisions we make. Parents, don't miss this. That are the ways that we parent, grandparents, don't miss this. The ways that we parent and grandparent children, the next generations, will have tremendous ramifications in their lives. Our actions, our words, our love will have tremendous ramifications. And we all know this to be true, don't we? We know this is true. And I think God's just saying, this is just, this is how I've created the world, that when you live in certain ways, when you continue to hurt other people, what you do will often be repeated in the lives of your children. And so I said it this way, we tend to repeat what we receive. Did you know that? This is how cycles happen in life. This is like when you go to a counselor, which I think all of us need to see counselors from time to time. I know it used to be taboo to say that, but I think we all need counselors from time to time who can help us with a perspective that um, gives us a, a, a true image of what we're walking through and, and what counselors often help us to see is we often are, are just repeating the same patterns that we've received in the past. And we have to make clear decisions to live in a different way so that we might pass on other principles. And this is what God wants us to receive from him. He wants us to receive from him compassion and grace, slow to anger, filled with unfailing love, so that we might pass along those same things to our children and grandchildren, generation to generation to generation. Does that make sense? Are you still with me? Okay. Now, last week, Cameron, um, Cameron, like one of the things that he does, he's like, he's like a scholar in some ways, and he pulls out Hebrew words, and I felt like I have to, you know, pull out some Hebrew words for you. So here we go. A couple Hebrew words. Chanun. 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 It's like back way deep, like Chanun. 
um, which means gracious and merciful. This is the actual word that we find in this little spot here. And then um, the root word of kanun is, is kan, ken, kan, kan. I don't know, where's Cameron? Cameron, anyway. Grace and favor. 175 times in Scripture we find this word, which means it's pretty important. A hundred, over 175 times we find this word or some sort of this word, um, 175. So, so this idea of grace and favor is, is essential when we think about God. Now, I want to take you on a little trip with me. This is how my mind works sometimes. Um, when you dig into the word grace and what it means and, and the concept of graciousness and, and gracefulness, uh, when you dig into it, one of the things that you find in Scripture and just in, in, in the human world that we live in, you find this idea that grace is a response to something that is seen that is favorable. Does that make sense? So you see something that you like and you have a... a a good response to whatever it is that you see. Um, one of the ways in Scripture, I think in the Psalms, that it talks about a graceful deer. Have you ever seen a graceful deer or antelope, like running, some of you, cheetah? Any? Like, I'm going to keep naming animals. Um, buffalo aren't graceful. Um, you, you know what I'm talking about, though. There's a graceful. Uh, one of the ways Scripture talks about objects is like a, an object of grace around a woman's neck is like a jewel. It's an object of grace. It creates this favorable response. And I was thinking in my life, when have I ever seen something that, that created in me a favorable response? Now, this is how my crazy mind works. And some of you, after I say this, you're going to be like, that's why you need to go see a counselor, Matt. <laughs> so when I was in middle school, uh, there was a basketball player who grabbed my attention, and I just could not get around it. Like, I just... my. I was obsessed, and I felt like he was just such a graceful basketball player. The things that he did on a basketball court, I had never seen in my life. And I don't even have to tell you his name. You know. <laughs> Do you remember seeing this? The slam dunk contest where Michael Jordan, I think it was Dominic Wilkins that he was uh, in the contest with, and they were kind of back and forth. And then Michael Jordan went... The length of the basketball court it goes all the way to the end. Some of you, some of you will remember this. Others have, don't even care about this kind of thing. But he goes all the way to the end. He runs the length of the basketball court. He takes off from the free throw line, and he gracefully flies through the air like this, and he dunks it. What's the basketball? How far is it from the hoop? 15 feet? Is that right? Yeah, so 15 feet. He flies in the air 15 feet and is able to dunk the basketball, which is, the goal is 10 feet tall. Yeah, 10 feet, 15 feet. It's unbelievable. And there was this film that came out, this documentary called Come Fly With Me. Does anybody remember Come Fly With Me? Come Fly With Me. I wore that VHS out. If you don't know what a VHS out is, <laughs> ask your dad. I wore that thing out. I watched it, and I watched it, and there was this moment when they were showing all these plays, my dad walked into the room one time, and I was just going over the same play over and over again. And what it was was Michael Jordan had backed a defender down um, probably around 15 feet just to the side, 
and he had backed the defender down with the ball, and he took a step this way, this way, and he was so quick that when he took a step this way, the defender leaned this way, and then he goes the other way, and he goes up and he dunks the ball so hard. And I'm like, it's the most graceful thing I've ever seen in my life. It's unbelievable. My dad's like, why are you watching it over and over? And I said, because I'm going to do that in my game tomorrow. <laughs> and I was in ninth grade. You laugh. You don't know what I'm capable of. So the next day, I get the ball on the wing, and I back my defender down, and I take a step this way, and I go the other way, and I go up and lay the ball up, a finger roll, <laughs> bucket, two points. Like, I was so inspired that I wanted to imitate or copy Michael Jordan because of how graceful he was. Do you know what I'm talking about? Sometimes some of you... Like, all of us have different ways of doing this. Some of, sometimes some of you, like, hear singers on the radio. And you're like, that is so graceful and beautiful. And you get in the shower and you sing, and it sounds so bad, but you think you sound good. And you're, like, trying to imitate because you have this response. And so when we talk about grace, at times there's this idea that it's a response to something favorable that we experience or see. But what is unique in Scripture what is unique in Scripture and what is unique about God is that God has a favorable response to those who do not possess any beauty. Like, it's incredible. Like, I watch this film of Michael Jordan over and over and over because it's worthy of my attention, right? It's like I should look at it. God watches you over and over and over, and he watches me over and over, even though there's nothing beautiful or graceful about how I'm living, and he, he responds with favor. Is that amazing? That is God's grace, and it's unlike anything else in the world. Nowhere else do we find this. I mean, that's the grace of God. Andy Stanley said this, grace is what we crave most when our guilt is exposed. Isn't that true? Like, when, the, like when, when your guilt is exposed and there's no excuses. I know we all try to excuse it away or, you know, we, we try to make reasons for why, you know, but when it's exposed and it, we just are who we are, don't we want grace? Don't you want grace? When you cut someone, out, when you cut someone off on Shay and you just didn't see them, and you're like, I didn't see you, like, I'm so sorry, and you put up your hand, and you, like, wave. Some of you have done that to me. You wave, and you're like, you're like just, just give me some grace. Just give me some grace. We all want grace when our, when our guilt is exposed, don't we? We all want that. And then Andy Stanley says this, that, that grace is what we're hesitant to extend when we've been hurt or offended. It's what we all want when we need it, but it's, it's what we're hesitant to give when someone hurts us. And so, you know, when someone cuts you off on Shay, I never do this, but when someone cuts you off and you feel like you have to get as close as you can to their bumper to let them know that you were there first, like you are hesitant to give grace because you've been offended. You think you really, you're, re you're more important than me? You're going to cut me off? Like, come on. And that's just lightweight stuff. You know what I'm talking about. Grace is what we all desperately want. And it's relational. This is all relational stuff. And so God knew to be a God of grace, like it says in Exodus. 
he actually had to relationally enter into the world in which we live. And so John says it this way, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Look at this. This is, this is unbelievable, y'all. Like no other religion, sometimes we wonder, what's the difference between the religions? No other religion has a God who enters into humanity in order to relationally redeem and restore what we broke. Like that's the kind of God, that's the grace, that's the response is that when God doesn't see beauty in us, he's, he's more interested in entering in to create beauty than he is to point his finger at us for failing to live out beauty. Are you with me? I mean, that's grace. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. This is John quoting Exodus chapter 34. It's him bringing it to mind again. For from his fullness, in Exodus 34, it talks about, you know, God being full of unfailing love. For from his fullness, we have all received and grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. He wants us to see this in grace and, grace and truth come through Jesus. I want to tell you a quick story, um, and then I'll land the plane at some point. Don't worry. But I want to tell you this story, unbelievable story of Jesus in the flesh, in a relationship, in a relational setting. So Jesus was teaching, and there was a crowd around. And in the middle of this moment, with this crowd gathered around Jesus, the Pharisees, who were always trying to trap Jesus into saying something that, you know, would get him in trouble. They were always wanting to, like, set him up. And so he's in front of this crowd. He's teaching. He's teaching. The Pharisees bring a woman into this setting. Jesus, imagine a crowd like this. And Jesus is speaking and talking, and people are leaning in and listening because Jesus' teaching was amazing. And as he's doing it, um, the Pharisees kind of nudge their way to the front, and they're like, Jesus, um, we found this woman... We caught her in the very act of adultery, which should raise some questions to us. <laughs> huh. You, you actually caught her in the act of adultery. Like, where do you guys hang out? You know, like all kinds of questions around this story that we don't normally ask. But if you get into the story, you're like, oh, that's an interesting question. Now, they say the law of Moses says that we should stone this woman, that we should kill her. She's caught in adultery, we should kill her. The law of Moses, Moses also says that you should stone the man who was in the setting as well, but the man wasn't brought before him, which means these Pharisees aren't really interested in the truth of who God is. They're just trying to trap Jesus. So they bring this woman, Jesus. We caught her in the act of adultery, and the law of Moses is clear. And if you're God, like you say you are, what do you think we should do? Should we stone her? And like Jesus does, like he's, like he's bending down, he's writing in the sand, you know, and you're like, what did he write in the sand? Ooh, I wonder what he wrote in the sand. Uh, is he writing the law? Um, some scholars ask the question, was he writing the sins of the people who were actually asking the question? <laughs> was he drawing pictures? We don't know what he was doing. But he was writing in the sand, they ask him the question, what do we do? The law of Moses says this, and Jesus just simply stands up and he says, okay, stone her. But the first one to throw the stone should be the one who has no sin among you. And then he just bends down and he starts writing again. Yeah, so the law says that she should be killed because, you know, she's caught in the act of adultery and this isn't good. And you know what happens? 
like the Pharisees, and started, starting with the oldest one, because the oldest one is like, yeah, I'm out. <laughs> starting with the oldest one, they all just kind of disappear. They like turn from the crowd, and they just like make their way out of the crowd. And then Jesus realizes that he's, you know, kneeling down, and the woman is probably kind of kneeling down or in front somehow uh, because they were trying to shame her and all that kind of stuff. And so she's probably up here, and Jesus looks around and realizes that all the Pharisees are gone. And so he looks at her. Listen, he looks at her, and he says, Woman, where, where are your accusers? They're gone. Now here's the grace of God. Don't miss this. We can all agree that a woman caught in adultery or a man caught in adultery are guilty. Would we say that? They're guilty. Jesus looks at her and he says, I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. I don't, I don't condemn you. Go and live in a new direction. Live differently. Like, don't, don't sin anymore. And we experience firsthand in this story, in a relational sense, the God who has been pursuing you and me, inviting us to call him Father. Who is responding, even though we don't deserve it, with favor towards us. How unbelievable is that? Let me, let me say this and just let this settle into your mind and heart. God favors you. Isn't that a weird phrase to take in? Well, let me, let me change it a little bit. You don't deserve it, but God favors you. A little bit more uncomfortable. But it's true. Like, none of us deserve it. But God looks at us and he acts, he responds in grace, with favor, even when we're guilty. And, and some of us, those two statements that Jesus made, all of us need to hear one of those two statements today. Some of us have been living in, in shame because of the ways of our life or because of something that happened a long time ago and we just are so ashamed and we're living with this shame. It's overwhelming. And you need to hear God say to you through Jesus, I don't condemn you. I mean, that's beautiful. That's good news. Come on, that's good news. God doesn't condemn you. And some of you need to just let that sink in because you've just been filled with shame just for so long. And some of us need to hear Jesus say to us, I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. There's grace in that. There's grace in that. There's grace in calling us to live differently because it matters in this world. The way that we parent our children, the way that we love our spouses, the way that we love our grandchildren, the way that we do business, all of that matters. So Jesus says, go and sin no more. Like, live differently. I mean, it's this beautiful picture of grace. Tim Mackey of the Bible Project, he says this, when people are willing to own their failures and ask God for grace, he has a consistent, generous response. Like, God always, when we ask him, when we own our failures, God always gives us himself 
his life and his love. That's what God has for you. And church, that's what we call good news. We don't deserve it, but he gives it anyway. We're not worthy, but he favors us. I mean, that's good news, and it's all built around Jesus. Yeah, I was thinking, the first picture of grace in the Bible. I was thinking about this. What, what is the first picture of grace? The first time this word is actually used in the Bible is with the story of Noah, uh, interestingly enough. So that's your homework. Go find it. But the first time we see grace in the Bible, I believe, um, there's a story in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, and it's a story of God creating everything that there is and God giving some boundaries to Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve break down those boundaries. I know we never do this. Like, we never break down the boundaries that are put in place to keep us safe. I know you never do that, but some people sometimes break down boundaries, and Adam and Eve kind of broke the boundaries that God gave them. And um, as the story goes, like, it's built uh, in this, uh, the picture is in this, this garden, the garden of, what was the name of it? Eden. I'm just making sure you're still listening. Um, garden of Eden. And as the story goes, when Adam and Eve break the boundaries that God gives them, their eyes are opened in a way that they've never seen before. And they, this word, it uses this word, they feel shame. They feel ashamed. And so they go into hiding and all that they can find to cover themselves, and I think this is physical, but I also think it's emotional, and I think there's so much packed into this truth, that the only thing that they can find to cover themselves and to cover their, their shame is like leaves. If you read the story, all they can find is like plants. And so they cover themselves and hide from God. Now, I've never done any kind of research. I've never tried it myself to like wear leaves for a while. But I have a feeling like leaves just don't last. I don't know where I, this stuff comes from. It just is up there. Now listen, they're hiding. God is walking in the garden. Where are you? They said, we, we heard you coming. We were ashamed, so we hid with their leaves on. The one thing God asked them not to do, they do. And then God looks at them, and he sees their shame. But he knows that what they put together, the leaves, will not hold. I think this is a picture of God's grace. You know what he does? He gives them clothes from the skins of animals that will last. Now, if that's not a picture of God's grace, I don't know what is, because they didn't deserve it. The Bible, from the beginning to the end, is this unified story of a God of all grace and love, compassion, pursuing humanity, who continually turns and walks away from him and when we find ourselves ashamed, it is the God who enters in relationally with Jesus to redeem and restore what we could never do on our own. 
Friends, that's grace. That's grace. And he invites you to call him Father. How good is that? How good is that? God, thank you for pursuing us with this favor that we don't deserve, the grace that you have for us. Thank you for sending Jesus. And you promise us, you promise us that you will be that God of compassion and grace whenever we turn back. So God, this morning we turn back and we hold on to your promises. Those promises never fail us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to give you four, I think, ramifications of grace that I'd love for you to chew on as you leave today. Here's the first one. Grace overrides condemnation. Come on, this is good news. Grace overrides condemnation in our lives. God's grace, if you feel condemned or shamed, grace overrides that. The second thing is this. Grace redefines our identity as children of God. Oh, grace redefines who we are. And I think all of us in life are trying to figure out who we are. Come on, right? Like we're all trying to figure out who am I in this world? How do I fit in? Grace is what redefines our identity as children of the most high God. Third thing, grace invites us to a better version of ourselves. Grace moves us to go and sin no more. Grace changes us to live in this world differently than what we lived before we experienced God's grace. And then the fourth one, grace reframes our relationships. Parents, grace should reframe how we parent our children. Moms and dads, grandparents, grace should reframe how we love our grandchildren and speak life into them. Husbands, grace should redefine and reframe how we love our wives. And wives, it should reframe how we love our husbands. Grace should reframe how we do business, the relationships that we have in the, our sphere of work, vocation. Grace is a relational gift of love and favor. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. It's a relational gift from God. His grace is love and favor towards you and me. It's an invitation to call him Father. No condemnation anymore. No shame anymore. Grace alone. Grace alone. Through our trusting of what Christ did. Now church, that's good news. That's good news. You have a father. He loves you more than you'll ever know. He's full of compassion and grace. And that should change us. Amen? So go today in his love, his compassion, and his grace, and then extend it to everybody that you see. We'll see you next Sunday. Thanks for being here today.